Welcome to Bread. From the beginning, God's people have engaged in the regular worship of God. From a biblical perspective, not only is worship of God our highest calling, it is in fact integral to who we are. So understanding what worship is, how we do it, and practicing it enables us to become more fully ourselves. This short series covers the worship life of Bread from sung worship and services on a Sunday, to a general posture of worshipfulness throughout our daily lives, to worshiping God with our resources, our time, and our gifting. Enjoy. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Ben, if we have not met. Um, we're doing a series on worship. Uh, and as the resident worship czar of the church, I am speaking today. Uh, today's going to be a little dense, so we're just going to get straight into things as I adjust this. Uh, I spoke on this uh, like last year or the year before, and there were props, and I have brought props back <laughs> to bread. It's going to be great. Um, let's pray. Let's pray, and then let's get into things. All right. God, we thank you that you are a good God and that you are good to us and that we can see the evidence of your goodness at work in our lives and in our community. And we just pray this morning that you will have been blessed by the offering of our voices and singing. And now we pray that you would speak to us through your word. God, I pray that I would just be a vessel and that um, the things that I say today would ultimately be you speaking to us, God. Your word says that your spirit leads us into all truth, so we just invite your spirit now to be here and to lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, uh, today I'm gonna talk about why we sing songs in church and why we call it worship, where, the, where that comes from, um, what it means, why it's important for us, and to do it, we're gonna basically look at worship in the Old Testament, how that then becomes worship in the New Testament and then what that means for us today. Um, so before we get into anything, I'm going to invite Nelly up, who's going to read to us from the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. It's okay, I'm short. Good morning, everybody. This is Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The smoke machine is back. All right. <laughs> These things are so abrasive, aren't they? Uh, okay, I have a smoke machine in case you haven't seen, because I want to illustrate a point. We are told that 
We're given a few images of heaven, and they often look like this. Um, you can read about it in Ezekiel, or you can read about it, obviously, in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 4, 5, and 7, which describe these scenes of hosts of angels and created beings flying around this throne on which God sits, and that they are singing, holy, 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 worthy is the lamb that was slain, um, blessing, honor, power, glory, and strength. And as they sing, the book of Isaiah tells us that the temple was filled with smoke. Uh, this is some kind of, I mean, you know, it's hard for us to fully comprehend what that looks like. I don't know if anyone's seen, if their TikTok algorithm has brought up, people have been punching in the descriptions of angels and angelic beings into those AI generators. It's kind of terrifying. It's just these like giant things covered in eyeballs and it's kind of amazing. Um, hard for us to fully comprehend what they look like, but we're given this picture. The reason I have the smoke machine is relevant. If you were here last time, you'll understand this, but we're going to going to get back to that. Okay, so that's the image that we're presented, uh, this idea that these, these created things are singing these songs of worship to God, and that his presence manifests like smoke in the throne room. Um, last time we discussed how human beings were created to be in the presence of God, but that sin separated us from that, and we know that that's kind of the story of our faith, that um, from the earliest books of the Bible, we were created to be in communion with God, that sin separated us from that communion, and then, you know, the entire story of the Bible is basically the tale of how God brought us back into a place of connecting with him. The bit that we're going to look at, and we staged this out in great detail last time, we're not going to do that this time. But uh, through the guy that we all know as Moses, God created a system for how we could approach his presence. Because obviously the smoke of his presence was so holy, and sin can't exist in his holiness, and so us as sinful human beings weren't able to step into the smoke of God's presence. But what God did was create a system through Moses, and he gave mankind um, essentially a way to approach his presence. So again, without getting into the details of it, um, and I'm going to be simplifying a lot of stuff today, but I'll give you all the scripture references so that you can look at these. But God gave to Moses the blueprint for a physical construction that was a giant tent that provided a pathway that had different stages and actions to create a place for God to meet with his people. <clears throat> the thing that I want you to take away from this morning is, and look, we've got a picture of this. Uh, it's called the Tabernacle of Moses. The most important thing for today's purposes to remember is that there were three sections. So I don't know if you can see this clearly, but I'll point it out to you. There's the outer court. And then within the outer court, there was a tent. This is the holy place, and the tent was divided into two sections, the holy place and then the most holy place. Um, and basically, and then you can see there's sort of these other things that we, again, staged out last time. Basically, the, the Old Testament is filled with these kind of rituals and traditions that God had people do that on some level, they all kind of symbolized an aspect of God's holiness, and it, it, it was like a physical form for us to understand some aspect of how God works. But that was the tent um, God gave to Moses. In the most holy place was placed the Ark of the Covenant, and we've got a picture of this as well, which is where the presence of God, actually, you can buy that on Amazon for $11.49 if anyone's interested. Um, the Ark of the Covenant this is where the presence of God would meet. Um, so the Ark of the Covenant was a box made of gold that featured um, two winged cherubim extending their wings over the top of the box. And it was between the wings that the presence of God would manifest and speak. 
Um, I sort of think of the ark as being like this piece of hardware that you would use to open a portal to the throne, which I know sounds a little weird, but if you can think like this, I promise you that it'll help us, um, it'll help us later on as we get to kind of the New Testament. Basically, to approach the presence of God, somebody would have to walk through the outer court, conduct a system of sacrifices and rituals and washings and things, enter the holy place, do some more things, and then get into the most holy place. And after they had done all those ceremonies, they'd stand in front of this thing, and it's like the portal would open, and they'd get a glimpse of the throne room of God speaking to them. That was how you had to access the presence of God at that time, because sinful man kept us away. Um, and then we read in Exodus chapter 40 that on the day that the tabernacle was completed, when they finally built the whole thing, it says that the cloud descended on the tent, the presence of God sat there like a cloud, and it was so thick. It says here, the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is Exodus 40 verse 34. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So performing the rituals of Moses' tabernacle opened this portal to the throne room between the wings of the cherubim. Um, and in Psalm 80, this language is repeated. It says, Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim. So this system of this cloud... <clears throat> um, system is how the Israelites followed God for a long time through the desert. The tabernacle of Moses became the nation of Israel's primary means of communicating with God for centuries. Fast forward to a guy called, does anyone remember from last time? Who's our next person that's relevant in our story? Does anyone remember who the next person is? Oh gosh, I must have taught this terribly. Thank you. Nice and loud, Nelly. David. Centuries later, we get to a young guy called David. Now, again, I'm going to overly simplify his life story. Um, this young man who was described in 2 Samuel 21, verse 2, as the sweet psalmist of Israel. What we know about David is that he was a skilled warrior, but also he was a worshiper. That um, essentially, to recap David's life, at this point in Israel's history, God was looking for a king, and it says he was kind of searching around, and he essentially saw this kid playing songs on a hilltop, singing to his sheep, singing songs about God, and God was like, that's the kind of king I want. And so David becomes this king of Israel. He's described as a man after God's own heart, and he's an amazing model for a worshiper. We're actually gonna do a series on David um, and his life and ministry later in the year, so come back to this sermon after you've sat through that. Um, a lot of us are familiar with David's life story, but what I wanna talk about is that to this king called David, the psalmist, the warrior, the guy that killed Goliath, the guy that wrote half of the psalms, and there's like 66 chapters or something of the Old Testament devoted to the life of David. To this guy, God gave an updated version of the tabernacle. When the Ark of the Covenant comes back to Israel under David's rule, instead of returning it to the system that Moses had instituted, David creates a new place for the Ark of the Covenant to dwell, and thus a new system of approaching the presence of God, David's new order. And this is the third pick that I think you got a sneak preview of um, that we can put up. So interestingly, where Moses' tabernacle was, three different layers of access, the outer court, the holy place, the most holy place, David's 
system was literally just a tenth with the Ark of the Covenant in it. Um, you can read about his new order for doing this in 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and 16. Essentially, David removed the outer court and the, and the holy place and just gave immediate access to the most holy place. Instead of a, com uh, a complex system of sacrifices, incense offerings, cleansing rituals that the priests had to do in Moses' tabernacle, in David's tabernacle it says this, 1 Chronicles 16, verse 4 to 6. He appointed some of the Levites who were the priests to minister before the ark of the Lord, to extol, thank and praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Asaph was the chief, next to him in rank was Zechariah, and then etc., etc., a bunch of names. They were to play the lyres and harps. Asaph was to sound the cymbals, and Benaiah and Jehaziel, the priests, were to blow their trumpets regularly before the ark of the covenant of God. So David's system... where with Moses, the priests were sacrificing animals and doing all of those things that we staged out last time. In David's system, they would immediately stand before the hardware that gave us the portal to God's presence, and they would sing, and they would play their instruments, and they would write songs, they would clap hands, they would dance, they would shout, they would bow down, they would lay prostrate on the ground. Instead of an animal sacrifice, they would bring a sacrifice of praise. Instead of burning incense, they would raise their hands and their prayers rose to God like incense. And where the high priest used to lift his hands with the evening sacrifice, in the old system, the high priest would offer his sacrifice and lift his hands. Now David's priests would lift their hands in worship as a symbol of doing the same act. The system of playing music and singing around the Ark of the Covenant we call this is sort of archaic language, but I still use it. It's, we call it, refer to it as like David's order of worship, the way that David worshipped God and instituted it. And it's through this that a lot of the Psalms were written during this time when it says a Psalm of this person, a Psalm of that person, for the singers, etc., etc. They were written by these guys that were spending every day and every night dancing in front of the Ark of the Covenant, singing their songs. So, a few years later, when David dies and his son Solomon finally builds the temple that is the ultimate resting place for the Ark of the Covenant, Solomon continues what David started and institutes a whole bunch of priests singing and dancing and playing their instruments in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, remembering that the Ark of the Covenant is this piece of hardware that God gave us to open up the portal to his throne room. It says that on the day of dedication, once the temple was built, Solomon has, so now David's tent is no longer a tent, it's a physical structure, it's a, it's a room in a temple that's been built. It says on the day of dedication that they emerged from the holy place and sang a song to the Lord with all the people. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 5 verse 13. And it says, the trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. The singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord, and they sang, he is good, his love endures forever. And then it says that the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So just the act of singing and worshiping opened the same portal to this throne room of God. Somehow the presence of God was manifest as a cloud just through their singing and their worship.
worshipping. In the years following David's death and Solomon's death, we see that the nation of Israel goes through a whole series of high points and low points, and they have a cycle of good kings and bad kings. Every time there was a good king or a godly king that would come back to the throne, they would restore David's order of worship. So every time, if you read through the, um, these, these stories, and you can hear it in the stories of uh, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah, and then we even see it with Ezra and Nehemiah who rebuild the temple later in Israel's history. Every time a godly king comes back, they reinstitute for people to stand in front of the Ark of the Covenant and sing and play their instruments. And every time it happens, the Spirit of God moves again in Israel's history. Um, I think it's because these godly kings understood that there was something that happened in worship, that it wasn't just as simple as playing, playing songs and making sounds and celebrating an art form, that, that it was somehow as symbolic as sacrificing an animal and doing all those rituals that used to happen in Moses. Somehow the playing of instruments was doing something spiritually as well as just physically making noise. We see evidence of it in the story of King Jehoshaphat, which happens in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and we read how when Jehoshaphat was king and the Israelite army was so overwhelmed by tens of thousands of their enemies, there, was, there were thousands to one uh, of the Israelite army, and they're surrounded. Jehoshaphat gets on his knees and prays, and God gives him this idea that when they then ride out into battle, instead of sending out his kind of mightiest warriors, what does he do? He sends out musicians and singers. Strangest battle plan you can imagine, but what happens? While his musicians and singers are out in front of their armies, playing their instruments, worshiping God, it says that God went before them as they sang, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. It says God went before them and turned all of their enemies against each other so that by the time Jehoshaphat's armies reached the battlefield, their enemies had destroyed each other. That was the power of their worship. That's what happens. When God is the king, his will is enforced. Okay. This is good. Are we keeping up? I'm racing, but I feel like I'm seeing some people, a couple of people nodding off a little bit, but um, feel free to raise your hands if you have any questions. No, don't do that, because... Uh, okay. So we're getting, we're, getting to the, we're getting to the New Testament now. Um, so remembering that, as I said, every king, good king, bad kings would kind of sin and do terrible things, and then good kings would come back to, like, we're going to worship God like David did. Okay. So all, obviously both of these systems of approaching the presence of God were only a shadow of what was to come in Jesus. So when we get into the New Testament... Instead of a physical piece of hardware that connects us to God, we have a literal human being who somehow miraculously is both the connection to God and is God. And that's just something we can enjoy spending the rest of our days understanding. Um, in John's prologue of the gospel, he says that of Jesus, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But the word that John uses is actually he tabernacled among us. So Jesus is somehow the embodiment of what these tents were and the embodiment of the Ark of the Covenant, walking and living amongst us as a human being. 
where once we had a physical box that was the hardware to open this portal to heaven, we now not only have the portal to the throne, but the king himself in the person of Jesus walking and living among us. And then when Jesus died, we see this very symbolic moment happen in the temple that still existed at that time. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't in there, but the systems were all still there. And this thick veil that protected the most holy place ripped apart when Jesus died, symbolizing that we now all of us have access to the most holy place and to the presence of God, that we don't need to be shielded from God's, um, the cloud of God's holiness anymore because we are welcome to enter into that place. When Jesus is then raised back to heaven, the Bible tells us that by God's spirit, Jesus now lives in us. So this person who was the ultimate version of the hardware box, the portal creator, where does he live? In us. I can give you scripture references for this. John 14, 17 says, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and he will be in you. Romans 8 verse 5 says, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit that lives in you. Colossians 1, uh, 26 says, the mystery that was kept hidden for ages and generations, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this whole system of approaching the presence of God and of finding a way to access the smoke of God's presence now resides in us. So to recap, Moses' tent was a complicated system that led up to a box that would open a portal to the throne of God. And then David's tent took that box containing the presence of God, put it in a single room, and would open the same portal to God's presence just through singing songs of worship, just through playing instruments. And then Jesus arrives as the human version of that portal opening box and now, thanks to the Holy Spirit and the work that Jesus did, Jesus, the human portal, lives in us. Does it sound weird to say portal in this room so many times? I'm hoping you understand. I play a lot of video games. I was going to make a portal reference, but then I realized Charles might be the only person that knows what I'm talking about. Um, okay. So, you might want to say, well, okay, if Jesus came to do away with a lot of the systems that are in the Old Testament, we know that we don't have to sacrifice animals anymore, so obviously Jesus kind of fulfilled what the requirements of Moses' tent system was, so we don't need to do that anymore. And then you would think, well, surely the same thing goes for David's tent. Why would the way that they worshipped in the Old Testament um, system of making music in front of the Ark of the Covenant, why wouldn't that be completed? We don't have to do that. Well, interestingly, um, the prophet Amos said <clears throat> in Amos 9, 11, and 12, in that day I will raise up David's fallen tent and close the breaches thereof. He gives this prophecy about one day in the future, the house of David being restored. And in Acts chapter 15, when the apostles are having an argument about something very specific to them, James interestingly quotes this scripture and they're talking about something specific, just to be clear, they're not specifically discussing worship, but to make a point about uh, Gentiles being welcomed into the kingdom, what James does is quotes this scripture to say 
I have evidence that Jesus is the house of David being restored in our time. So that's undisputed. For us then, we can just go back to the Old Testament and look at every single time the house of David was restored. It wasn't just about a good king coming back on the throne. It was also about his system of worship. So I believe that when James is giving that as, an, as evidence for we have a king just like in the order of David back on the throne, and obviously Jesus is the ultimate king of all kings, I believe what Jesus brings is also the old system. It continues through of playing songs and singing songs to God, and in the playing and singing of our songs, somehow we can experience the presence of God. <clears throat> David's system of using music to open up this portal to heaven wasn't discontinued in Jesus. In fact, Jesus makes it more powerful because we don't have to go and find some physical box to do this in front of. Now, he lives in us. This is the stuff that I get excited about when I think about it because it's like every time we sing our songs, we're doing this thing that our ancestors used to do and they would have to go to a physical place to experience the presence of God dancing in front of a physical box. But now, with Jesus on the inside of us, we obviously don't get physical smoke happening every time, but every time we sing and worship and when we offer up our songs and our instruments to God, because the Ark of the Covenant in human form is now in us, we walk around with this complete access to the throne room and to the presence of God through the singing of our songs. Every Sunday when we get here and sing, I fully believe that the sound of our voices being lifted up like incense to God, we experience, we know when people get up and say, oh, I can feel the presence of God here today. That's because we are generating that out of our spirits as we worship him. Just as our priestly forefathers used to do, dancing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. Just as the presence of God would appear over that box while they would sing and play their instruments, we now have the presence of God appear around us as we sing. And it's no wonder to me that, you know, we then hear these stories of miracles and things happening in worship. Just like when Jehoshaphat got his guys to worship God and the armies, uh, God went before them and destroyed their enemies. We have a, a pretty great example of something similar happening in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 we get the story of Paul and Silas when they're in prison. And we know that Paul and Silas, one of the, Paul was the early apostle, and they'd been um, imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And what do they do? They're sitting there in their chains, waiting for their judgment, and they just start singing. It says that they started singing hymns. And just as in the throne room, as, the, as we read in Isaiah, that as the angels were singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, and it says that the foundations of the throne room shook, while Paul and Silas are singing their songs, just singing, it says that the earth shook, and there was an earthquake, and then they were freed from their prison. I believe it's because when we worship God, his presence is manifest around us and things happen. I've seen healings in worship. You know, in the church that I, my parents um, were folk singers in Indonesia back in the 70s, and then they both got uh, radically sort of converted to Christianity, um, and they just immediately flipped from being like dreamy, harmony singing folk singers to just worship leaders. So my entire childhood, I just grew up 
traveling churches and hearing my parents sing. And it's so funny, when as a kid, you're just like really tired of it. But as you get older, you kind of look back and realize what a blessing it was. And I've just, I've been in too many worship services and so many experiences. But in those worship services, I've seen some crazy things. I've seen people go through total deliverance in worship. No one's laying hands on them. Someone just in the singing, in the worship, because the presence of God begins to build and manifest in our presence, someone just starts experiencing healing or starts screaming in the back row because a demon's coming out of them. I've seen this kind of stuff happen. And it makes sense when you think about it because when God's presence is there, sin has to flee, sin has to run. I've seen people get healed in worship. All right, watching the time, watching the time, racing. So I wanted to talk, now that we've established all these things, uh, practically for us as a church, I wanted to kind of talk about um, what I believe, the kind of worship culture we're trying to build at this church and, and what um, I believe the Apostle Paul is <clears throat> encouraging us in the New Testament. There's two scriptures uh, that I want to read to you, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.18. They essentially say the same thing. Colossians says... Let the word of God dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing each other in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God. And Ephesians 5.18, he also says, sing to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. I believe that in these writings, Paul is describing three aspects of what we do in a church service in the kind of music that we play. Uh, Psalms, where we literally will sing scripture. Anyone got, <clears throat> anyone got any examples of scriptural songs? We don't, it's funny, that a lot of contemporary songwriters aren't writing songs based on scripture as much, but come on. Some of you have grown up in church. I know that you know from the 70s, as the deer. Thank you very much. Let's play a little bit of it. You know that song. None after thee, you alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee. What's another one? Lord, you are my portion. What a beautiful song. Who, who wrote that? Lord, you are my portion, oh Lord. Oh. Uh, okay. I guess we could write more psalms. Tavia, do you want to get on that? Great. If you could just write um, some more of those. Hymns. We love hymns. In this church, especially, we, some of us love hymns more than others. Um, Ed has an aversion to old songs. What's a great hymn? I was thinking about this. Uh, How Great Thou Art. Oh, great. Who can play that? I can't play that song. <laughs> uh, you'd think I would have prepared for this. The Lord God Almighty, 
You guys are great. Okay, wait. We're going to do one more because I'm, I'm, I'm warming you up. We're, getting, we're heading somewhere. We're heading somewhere that's going to be uncomfortable. Okay. <clears throat> well, this is good. I'm also just proving the point that all of you can sing, which is great. Um, I was thinking that I don't actually know this song well enough, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but that's a hymn. That's a contemporary song. To me, if the Psalms are singing scriptures, then the hymns are just songs from us. It would be better if I actually knew the words of that song. Uh, what's another great old worship song? Jesus, lover of my soul. Jesus, I will never let you. The ultimate boy band worship song. Taking me from the miry clay, set my feet upon a rock, and now I Okay, that's another great uh, worship song. So singing psalms and hymns. Here's the interesting one that I believe. Singing spiritual songs. Or other parts of the Bible, it talks about singing a new song to the Lord. I think this is one of the most um, uncomfortable moments for a lot of people, especially in Western culture where music is not much a part of our day-to-day -day lives, which is also ironic because... Uh, we sing for joy in plenty of other circumstances if you see people in like football games and things, but another conversation. Singing spiritual songs. We do this a lot at our church, and I believe that there are, um, we've got five minutes to get into this, but we're going to do it. Um, you know when you find, you know when, you know when you apply for a job and you really need to get it? because it'll really change your life. And then you get that call that says, you got it. And then your mom walks in and it's like, why are you so happy? And you're like, I got it, I got it. You know those moments in life? You know in Little Rascals, when they find the dollar and he's like, I got a dollar, I got a dollar, I got a dollar, hey, 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 hey. I believe that singing a new song to the Lord is as simple as separating the song that we want to sing from something that already exists and just writing it on the spot. When God's done something good for you, it's just as simple as going, you're good to me, God. And all of us do it. We do it in our lives. I do it to my cats. I walk in and I'm like, which one are you pooped on the carpet? Which one are you? All of us know how to sing a new song but for some reason, it feels really vulnerable. And this is what's so bizarre in a church culture. The best thing about music in church is that none of it is performance. It's not about any one of us individually. In fact, if we think about what we're actually doing spiritually, it's the most liberating. We are just vessels. So when we have a moment at the end of a song, when we're just saying, Take my words, my thoughts, my questions, you're all I need. And then Tavia goes, you're all I need. 
we love to create a little musical moment of space, not so that I can Mariah Carey from the front row, but it's to give space to sing your own spiritual song to the Lord. Because the thing is, when you sing, take my hands and all possessions, I wrote those words, and those words are great. But they also mean something very specific. They're axiomatic in the sense that if you're singing those words, and if you're meaning, God, I'm surrendering everything, then you're eliminating all other possible meanings of the sounds that are coming out of your mouth. But if you sing your own song, maybe you've had a hard day, and those words might not be appropriate for you. So when we create space for you to sing your own song in those moments, that's the moment when you get to sing your own thing. Separate it from the song that I wrote. Let's try this. I'm not going to make you write a song on the spot, but let's just try something really simple. Everyone just do this. sequence of notes that you want. This is what's great. When you do this, forgetting the spiritual side of this for a second, it's like a flock of birds. When you watch a flock of birds flying around the sky, I can't remember what the name of it is, but it's when there's like a, just a crazy amount of them. No bird is in control of the shapes that they make. It's not like someone goes, we're all going to go left. They just, they're just instinctively flying. But they end up listening or following the sounds of the flapping of the other birds around them, and they end up creating this beautiful kind of dance. Something happens when we sing in a, in a group setting, and I know this is not just a church thing because I do this at my gigs when I perform. Uh, I get the crowd to sing their own song, and something happens, especially if you can't sing a note, this is the perfect moment to pretend you can. Because, again, there's something about the human voice that when all of us sing together, it somehow squishes us and it makes us all sound really beautiful. So, I'm going to do this. You're all I need. And then I just want you all to just start going. Sing whatever you want. It can just be oohs. It can be ahs. If you're confident, it can be la, 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 la. Or whatever. How do we feel? Feeling good? Okay, great. You ready? I'll give you a little runway. Now, a little bit. 
Firstly, it's just beautiful to do. Secondly, I love those moments because it's about what is in here. You don't have time. I can tell you now as a professional singer, you don't have time to do the math on what's the next note going to be. You're just, it's coming from here before it has any time to connect with up here. So when we sing psalms, we're singing scripture. When we sing hymns, we're singing beautiful lyrics that somebody has written to help us position intention before God, but then when we sing these spiritual songs, we're switching this bit off, and it's pure soul. It's pure heart. It's, it's you saying, God, I'm now just going to make sounds with this, but I'm switching this bit off, and it's coming from here. So in those moments in our service, when we give you space, and we allow a song to linger a bit, it's not because we're up here going, I don't know what to do next. It's to give you guys the opportunity, and also remember, it's no one's out there prophesying from the back row or anything like that. It's just a moment of pure spirit connecting to spirit. And if you think about how powerful that is on everything we've just set up with this idea that our worship can open a portal to the presence of God. I want to encourage you in your life, when you're in your day-to-day, I had this happen to me, and I can't explain the testimony because it's so ridiculous, but I was really anxious about something this week, and I was getting, I was just really, uh, I had a sick pet, and I'm not, we can get into the theology of God healing pets, that's another time. I was really anxious about it. I had just spent like $500 at the vet, and I was getting ready to have to spend like thousands more, and I literally had this moment where I was like, well, I'm preaching on worship, I'm talking about how you do things, great things in worship. So I <laughs> sat the cat on my lap and just sat at the piano and just started worshiping God. Not to like try and like superpower any kind of healing into the cat, but literally to just be like, God, you are in control of my life. You're in control of everything that happens. And all I'm gonna say is instantly the cat was healed. Uh, that's not the, I wish I had like an actual like, I had healing testimony. Um, My point is, as we go in our day-to-day lives, think about the power of what it is for us to bring songs and and praise to God. As a church, we are committed to growing in our understanding of this. I'd love to see us clap at bread sometime. We don't like to clap, we're very, we like to keep things low-key, and that's great, but we're, we're gonna clap one day, guys. We're gonna, it might be, Next week, it might be next year. You'll know it when it happens. (laughs) We're gonna have saxophone. We're gonna have more instruments. We're gonna maybe even have dancing one day. Who knows? Uh, I only say these things because it's all in the Bible. All right, let me get, we are absolutely out of time. Uh, As a church, we're committed. We're We're gonna understand what it really means to worship God. 
um, to continue this thing that our ancestors began. We're going to continue our tradition began by our ancestors of accessing the presence of God and experiencing his throne room. Um, we're going to keep bringing our songs of praise and worship to the Lord. And we're going to, I just pray that every time we worship, we would have that experience that Isaiah had, where he sees the throne of God and experiences the goodness of God. Um, I guess that's a good time for us to finish. Why don't we invite the band up? And we're just going to finish by singing a song of worship. Um, what song do you want to sing? I moved your microphone. Just be ready for that. All right. So now that we've all learned about our portal machines in our hearts, we're just going to sing a song of worship to the Lord. Um,